Blog Talk Radio. Music Laws Fighting for Justice Radio. Don't underestimate the other guys, Green. Robert, Mark, and Reed. You have the right to remain silent. Let me shut up. It's 30 minutes away. I'll be there in 10. They see me rolling. They hate Music Laws Fighting for Justice Radio analyzes civil cases in the news, trends in the law, and covers all legal current events. Each week, Music Laws Fighting for Justice features newsmakers, attorneys, media personalities, celebrities, experts, business people, and so much more. Music Laws Fighting for Justice. Straight talk, no nonsense. I'm going to make them an offer again with you. Now it's time for Music Laws Fighting for Justice Radio. Here are your hosts, Robert, Mark, and Reed. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much for listening. I really appreciate it. We have another fantastic show for you today, but before we get started, I want to remind everyone to check out our website at kuziklaw.com. That's K-U-Z-Y-K-L-A-W.com. Please let your friends know about the show and let them know that people can listen to our podcast on iTunes at blogtalkradio.com slash kuziklaw. Kuziklaw is fighting for justice radio with Mark Robert and Reed each week analyzes civil cases in the news, trends in the law, and we cover legal current events. Today we have four very interesting stories, and then we will talk to our expert, and if we have time, we'll do Reed's rant. Now for the first news story, Mark has a story about the Sandy Hook family's lawsuit against the gunmaker that was used in the in that terrible elementary school shooting. Uh, I guess the lawsuit was dismissed. Mark, tell us about the story. Yes, we all remember the Sandy Hook shooting at the elementary school about four years ago in December 2012 in Newtown, Connecticut, when the uh, young man, 20-year-old Adam Lanza, fatally shot 20 children and six adult staff members at the elementary school. At the time, it was the deadliest mass shooting in school history in, in a school in this country. Um, there's been a couple more since then have been have been worse. We had the Virginia Tech shooting in 2007 where 32 people were killed. And then we had the recent Orlando shooting where 49 people were killed. Um, in, th- in this instance, Lanza, he shot his mother before the massacre. And she, by the way, she purchased the gun that he used to kill all those students. Um, and then he committed suicide right when the law enforcement arrived. And as you may recall, the... Uh, this incident prompted renewed debate over gun control in the United States, including proposals for background checks and for federal and state legislation banning the sale and manufacture of certain semi-automatic firearms. So all of this came to the forefront just recently when uh, nine of those families that were victims, they brought a wrongful death suit against the manufacturer of the gun that was used in that massacre. Uh, The gun was called a Bushmaster AR-15 rifle, which was made by Remington Arms. Mark, what is the theory that these families use when they they try to allege that the gun maker, for creating a product that obviously is designed to fire a bullet, could fire a bullet into somebody and kill them, um, as far as making them liable when the product is used in the way it's apparently intended to be used? Well, they brought a the, the families brought a wrongful death action against Remington, and they were trying to hold them accountable for selling what their lawyers called a semi-automatic rifle that is too dangerous for the public because it was designed as a military killing machine. So, so what happened was the 
Connecticut Superior Court, they granted Remington's motion to dismiss the lawsuit because of a federal law that protects gun manufacturers from just about all lawsuits over the criminal use of their, their products. There's a law called the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act, and this was passed by Congress back in 2005. <clears throat> you, yeah. may recall, you may recall earlier this year Hillary Clinton was criticizing Bernie Sanders for his support at that time of the law, and uh, apparently Bernie Sanders is now trying to support a bill to repeal this law. Well, it sounds like the politicians were bought and paid for back in 2005 anyway, even though I I, I don't think that Remington should be held liable for somebody's criminal conduct with their their guns. Otherwise, nobody would be able to manufacture guns. But that law, that's pretty... If we didn't have that law, though, Mark, um, and you could sue the uh, Remington for manufacturing this weapon, um, what kind of shot would the plaintiffs have at winning that lawsuit based on, I guess, what you're saying is some sort of products liability theory? What kind of shot? Well, they, 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 they yeah, knew that's it was kind of a bad to... pun here, I guess, <laughs> I huh? under say. the circumstances. <laughs> but what would their chances be? I mean, apparently they're saying that this gun, although legal to sell, was somehow defective because it was too much gun for the populace. Is that basically what they were arguing? Well, no. I think what they're arguing is that it's it's a military-style killing machine. And, you know, here, here's the theory they were suing under. It's called um, negligent entrustment. That, that uh-huh. by the way, is the exception to the law, this, uh, this federal law that protects the gun manufacturers. So the lawyers... We're arguing that the federal law has an exception that allows litigation against companies um, when they have weapons are likely to be used in a way that risks injury to others. Um, And they call this negligent entrustment. For example, if a gun retailer handed over a gun to a visibly intoxicated person, that would be negligent entrustment because there would be no immunity under that law. Okay, so the lawyers are arguing that the company sells and markets this military-style weapon to the civilian market, and it's a form of negligent entrustment. So that so is, for, in essence, it would be they, every time they sell one of these guns to anybody, they're negligently entrusting it to them since it's beyond the capability or the use of what a normal person should have? Right. Hmm. Like they, One of the arguments they're making is that, uh, that these manufacturers, they've targeted teenage boys in video games like Call of Duty, which in fact features this exact same gun that's sold, sold by Remington, the AR-15. Um, but, you know, so what happened here in this lawsuit, the Connecticut Superior Court judge, he disagreed that this case fell within the exception, the negligent entrustment exception, and, and she dismissed the lawsuit. But, of course, uh, the lawyers for the families, they have vowed to appeal, um, Why is it it that when people say they're going to appeal, they don't just say, oh, we're going to file an appeal, but they vow to appeal, like they make a solemn oath? (laughs) So nobody ever just says, oh, I think we're going to file an appeal. They know they vow that they're going to appeal. It probably sounds better for the the publicity, (laughs) I guess. guess. They're getting publicity. All right, you're listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice radio show. We're going to move on to the next story. I cannot believe this. This is Jim Carrey gets hit with yet another wrongful death lawsuit over the suicide of his late girlfriend. And this time it's from her mother. Uh, these just seem so frivolous. Everybody's just ganging up on this guy. He can't, how could he be held? Robert, how can this guy, Jim Carrey, be held legally responsible at all for a, his his ex-girlfriend's taking her own life? How could he foresee that? How could he be responsible for that? 
Well, you know, just when you think this thing couldn't possibly get any uglier or any down in the gutter, some new development happens, which uh, which blows away whatever our previous uh, expectations were. A little background here for some of our listeners who may recall when we talked last month about the original lawsuit filed against Jim Carrey, arising out of the suicide death of his on-and-off on and off girlfriend, Catriona White, a makeup artist who was found dead from a suicide in a Sherman Oaks house uh, last year. Now, the original allegation was that Jim Carrey had provided the drugs that she had used to kill herself. And there's a law in California called the Drug Dealers Liability Act, which seeks to hold purveyors of illegal drugs responsible if drugs that they sell are consumed by somebody else and that causes harm. It seemed like a real stretch to argue that that could somehow, you know, make Jim Carrey liable, even if he did give these drugs to this girl that she ultimately used to commit suicide, because anybody who was trying to characterize Jim Carrey as a drug dealer, obviously has got, you know, quite a, quite a hill to climb. Um, that quickly descended into name-calling, though, because... Jim Carrey and his uh, his uh, lawyer, Martin Singer of Beverly Hills, pushed back really hard against that lawsuit, saying that it was a money grab by her estranged husband, who they questioned whether he was actually a legitimate husband and that perhaps it had been – the marriage had been for purposes of uh, – uh, avoiding the immigration laws so that she could stay here and, and work and get a work permit. Um, that was met by an amended complaint that was filed in that lawsuit where the ex-husband now, or the estranged husband, was now alleging that Jim Carrey had given her sexually transmitted diseases and uh, various other kind of, uh, you know, sensational allegations. Well, they now Jim Carrey um, has been hit with this, now this new lawsuit filed by the mother of Catriona White. And in this lawsuit, the mother actually is making the sensational allegation that her daughter killed herself because of the sexually transmitted diseases that she had received from Jim Carrey. Um, so it just gets crazier and crazier because now Jim Carrey and his lawyer in their typical scorched earth fashion have pushed back against that allegation and saying that the mother herself and her relationship with Catriona White is the reason why the girl committed suicide and that in fact she had abandoned Catriona as a child and that she had been blocked on her Facebook account and so it's just charges and counted charges filing and flinging back and forth um, and it's totally descended into uh, you know a gutter, a gutter fight here between the lawyers and between the parties to these lawsuits. What a nightmare. You know, I it's it's so sad that Kat White killed herself and I have a feeling she didn't even think that uh, how it, it's just another it's proof that when a person takes their own life, it has such ramifications. It's like that pebble that get, that hits the the calm lake. It's got ripples, ripple effects. I well, mean, who could have thought that her mother is going to end up being in court and her estranged husband and who knows who else is going to come out of the woodwork? Well, it's not only that, you know. I mean, it's the allegation has been made that the drugs that she used had been prescribed to somebody named Arthur White. And Jim Carrey in his camp is not disputing that Arthur White was a pseudonym or an alias that he used for the purposes of collecting prescription medication. Now, that is illegal under yeah, federal how do drug they, control. But how do they know she didn't? You know, take it out of his medicine cabinet or something without his his knowledge. They're never going to be able to prove that. I mean, well, I assume you know, Jim Carrey's not going to admit that he just handed it over. Well, no, actually, the allegation has been made that she did steal the drugs from him. But that might not be the end of the story because um, you might remember Anna Nicole, 
who died of a, uh, an involuntary overdose um, several years back, and her lawyer and manager was ultimately charged with criminal conspiracy because he had secured prescription medications on her behalf using an alias, and that led to criminal charges against him, of which he was convicted, although the charges were later thrown out. So even if Mr. Carey is successful in defending the claims filed by this, uh, this husband and this mother, he might not quite be the end of it with respect to his own possibly criminal liability as a result of what's coming out of these lawsuits. But Robert, again, it has to be beyond reasonable doubt, and I don't know how any prosecutor is going to keep is going to is going to be able to prove beyond reasonable doubt that he knowingly gave the the medication to her. Robert, does, well, does the, the drug law does it require a sale, or could, if he just gave it to her, would that make him considered to be a drug dealer? Well, you know, there has not been a lot of litigation, you know, not surprisingly, under this Drug Dealer Liability Act, typically because, you know, it's the drug dealers on around to be sued and uh, or to, be, to respond to judgment. So there's not a lot of case law, and I couldn't find any record of any such civil lawsuit actually having been filed in California. Um, but the law does not seem to require a sales per se. It just says furnishes. Although if you look at the title of the act, drug dealer, it certainly implies that it's some sort of commercial enterprise pursuant to which the drugs have been sold. Carrie seems to be sensitive to this issue because he's, he and his lawyers have made quite a, quite a point out of alleging that the drugs were stolen from him, that he did not give them to her, and he did not fur otherwise furnish or make them available to her, but that she was actually a thief. Now, that can help him with respect to defending this lawsuit. But in doing so, he seems to be acknowledging that the drugs, A, were his, and B, they were procured under a false name. And so even if he succeeds in winning this lawsuit, there could be some criminal liability down the road if some ambitious prosecutor decides that he wants to make more of the fact that apparently he was using a false name when he secured these prescription medications for himself. Uh, you no, know, that's where prosecutor, prosecutorial discretion comes in. I, I'd, I'd be shocked if they did that. Well, the, uh, the reason Go I ahead. asked that question was because in cases I, I've, that we handled here at Kuzik Law, I've seen where a client will take medication that they've gotten from a friend or a relative, like a Vicodin or something, that wasn't prescribed to them. I mean, could those people be considered drug dealers if they were furnished drugs? Well, you know, the, the, the law does not exactly define what is considered to be a drug dealer, although it would be hard, you'd think you would be hard-pressed to allege that somebody who just casually provided a pill or two to a friend or an acquaintance without payment could somehow be characterized as a drug dealer and thus fall, uh, uh, fall under the, 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 uh, the law that says they could be liable if something bad happens. Well, this is a really interesting discussion, and I think we could we could spend the whole show on it, but we got to move on because of our schedule. So, you're listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio. Check out our website at kuziklaw.com. The next story is uh, a story Mark is handling. This is a judge awards a fifty million dollar judgment to the mother of a teenage uh, a child dragged to death by a train after an attack over an iPod. Mark, what happened? Yeah, it seems like we specialize in sad stories on the show because there are just so many of them. And this is another example. This involves an incident nearly five years ago in uh, 2011 when a 19-year-old by the name of Octavius Lanier was killed when he was on his way to receive diabetes treatment. He was taking a light rail train to his appointment 
and he was at the on the platform at the station at the Martin Luther King Dart Station in East Dallas, and he was suddenly surrounded by a group of teenagers who were between the ages of 12 and 15 years old. And this group of kids had been on a rampage all day uh, robbing folks at several train stations. And in this instance, they were going after Lanier's iPod. And one of the kids pushed Lanier toward the train, and he fell in between the train and the station platform. And uh, as the dart train left the station, um, Lanier's leg became caught between the train and the station platform, and uh, they allege in in a lawsuit that the train conductor failed to assure conditions were safe before the driving away from the train station. And as a consequence, Lanier was dragged about 30 feet by the train, severing his femoral artery and ultimately killing him. So Lanier's mother said the train conductor sped away from the station rather than call for help or try to stop the beating by these four other kids. And then he was pinned between the stage and the, pla- uh, the train and the, and the platform. And, he, and she also said that the transit authority knew that violent crimes were increasing on its network that year, but they took no action. And, you know, the whole incident was captured on surveillance video at the, at the train station, so everybody knows who did what and what happened. Um, so Lanier's mother filed a wrongful death action against DART, the uh, Dallas Area Rapid Transit System. This past August, she settled with them, and that was confidential, so we don't know what the terms were of that. And all four of the attackers were juveniles, and the uh, Dallas prosecutors tried to have... Uh, one of them prosecuted as an adult because as an adult, the punishment can be harsher than it can be for a juvenile. Um, Was this a default judgment? It it was. So in the civil case, there was a default judgment, and uh, and the judge, see, the mom asked for $5 million for mental anguish, $10 million for future mental anguish, $5 million for loss of companionship, $10 million for future loss of companionship, and $20 million in punitive damages. And the judge just approved all of those amounts. But this is against yeah. these lunatic kids that are going to be in jail for for a long right. time, it, right? It, that's why they, you know, it was kind of like a, the judge just did it knowing that she'll probably never yeah. collect because they're all going to be in jail. And these kids are going to be in jail for quite some time, except for one of them, the 12-year-old, who was only four feet two inches tall. He was part of this group. He was a gang member since he was nine years old. Um, and in Texas, under the certain law, um, you can only be held in jail until you're 19 years old. So he's going to go to jail for seven years. And then a couple of the kids, they, they have some other special law where they're able to get around that 19-year-old release law. And uh, two of them are going to jail for 30 years, and one's going to jail for 22 years. So, they're, you know, if they're going to be in jail all that time, there's no way to collect from them because they don't make any money while you're in jail, obviously. Right. So. It's 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 symbolic. All right, it let's is. move on. That is a nightmare. Let's move on to yet another wrongful death suit. Uh, Robert, the judge in in this case, tossed uh, most of the 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 causes of action in a in a wrongful death suit against the police. What happened? Well, this all arises from the death of 41 year old Kayla Moore a black transgender woman in Berkeley who was uh, attempted to be arrested in 2013 when the police came to her apartment because of a domestic disturbance complaint. Um, Originally, the police thought that perhaps there was a warrant out for her arrest and attempted to arrest her, but then that changed 
to she was having some sort of mental health crisis because she was uh, known to have been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and have a host of mental health issues. Um, and in the course of trying to subdue her because she became very combative, um, she stopped breathing and later died. Now, her family filed a wrongful death lawsuit against the Berkeley Police Department, essentially saying that they used too much force and that the arrest was unlawful. And that even though, you know, she was acting in this combative state, that they had no right to try to restrain her. Um, they have a lot of problems with this theory from the very beginning because, according to the coroner's report, the cause of death had nothing to do with any injuries she may have sustained while the police were trying to restrain her, but instead came from acute drug intoxication and some longstanding heart issues. She was apparently extremely obese. Um, but the family pressed on with this lawsuit against the Berkeley Police Department, um, saying that, you know, they had treated this woman unfairly because she was black and because she was transgender, and that it had this been a white person, they wouldn't have treated her in this fashion, and that, in fact, the attempt by the police to restrain her was a substantial factor in causing her death. Well, the family got bad news uh, earlier this week when the U.S. District Court, uh, Judge Charles Breyer, threw out the majority of the claims against the Berkeley police, uh, saying that, in fact, they had used minimal force and that because she was uh, in the middle of an apparent mental health crisis, they did have the right to take her into custody, and that in any event, they have what's called qualified immunity under these circumstances, which prevents them from being held liable for civil damages for anything that happens if they're acting reasonably in the discharge of their official duties. I, th I think that just begs the question, though. The question is whether it's reasonable uh, and you know, whether that's a question of fact that a jury should decide as opposed to some judge deciding. Um, well, their whole case is that, you know, they unreasonable they used unreasonable force in this in this particular circumstance. Well, you know, regardless of how this case ultimately turns out, because these uh these plaintiffs again have vowed to appeal the judge's adverse ruling, um you know, we've seen this issue over and over again where we have the issue of mental illness and interactions with police. And typically the scenario happens where a family member or a, a roommate or something calls the police because some mentally ill individual is having some sort of crisis and acting out in some, you know, uncontrolled or violent manner. The police come and the police just don't have the training, it seems, or the experience to know how to handle those situations sometimes without having it escalate into violence. Now, we've heard of a lot of cases across the United States where they escalate into actual use of firearms or other types of more forcible uh, restraint methods that result in the death of the person. In this particular case, it was just the fact that they handcuffed her and pinned her to a mattress that the plaintiffs, uh, the family was saying caused her death. But, you know, we see this issue over and over again where the police, which really aren't qualified to handle mental health issues or mental health crises, are called upon to deal with a person who is experiencing something like that and some tragedy occurs has happened in this particular case uh, well we'll be interested to see how that how the appellate court responds to that that scenario all right you're listening to kuzik laws fighting for justice radio check out our website at kuziklaw.com and we're also on facebook uh, we're going to move on to ask the expert with our guest matthew green it's time to Ask uh, the Expert. Hi, ask the Experts is a segment each week that features an interview with an expert. Now back to Ask the Experts on Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice. 
Okay, so we are on the line with Matthew Green, who is the lawyer that is representing George, and I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this right, Hughley. Am I saying that right, you George, uh, right. Matthew? Yes, you did. Yes, All you right, did. tell me about this case and, and what's going on. Uh, well, this uh, uh, involves the death from May of 2010 of a, uh, a senior lacrosse player at the University of Virginia, Yardley Love, and her uh, on-again, off-again boyfriend, George Hughley, my client, was convicted of second-degree murder uh, in her death, and it's now a wrongful death lawsuit uh, in which I'm representing George, um, and that's where we are now. Why Does he have... Does he have assets or something? Why are they bothering? The guy's going to be in jail for 23 years. Right. Well, yeah, just like uh, one of the previous cases you were talking, uh, one of the key issues in this one will be collectability. And George uh, qualified as a resident of his mother's household in Maryland, and she had a quite uh, substantial homeowner's policy through uh, AIG. And there's a parallel case in Maryland and an insurance coverage action and the whole issue in that case is whether or not that insurance coverage would come into play for the death of Yardley Love. That ought to be interesting. Why, why would this guy's mother's insurance cover his intentional act for which he was convicted and service, serving 23 years? Well, he was convicted of second-degree murder, uh, and it's, it's um, very uncertain what happened. But we've done a great deal of investigation gotten a lot of experts to look at all of the physical evidence, uh, including forensic pathologists who have the very grim task of, of uh, looking at the very uh, specific details of the autopsy. We do not think this is an intentional act. We think this was unfortunately a very drunken accident where uh, the fatal injuries were the result of Yardley falling off the bed onto the floor with two, 220 pounds of my client, George Hughley, landing on her head. There was an ear witness in the apartment below Yardley's who heard the whole thing. Very brief interaction. The only thing she heard was a very loud sound that sounded like the large bookcase crashing to the floor. When the police got there, there was no furniture turned over or anything like that. So it's very consistent with, with the heavy object like that hitting the floor. So that's what we think happened, a drunken accident. And under the homeowner's policy, if it is indeed an accident, that would trigger coverage. If it's an intentional act, there's, of course, an intentional act exclusion. So that's the whole issue in the Maryland case, whether this was an accident or something intentional. But how would they get around, you know, if he was convicted by a jury, um, or I don't know, maybe he took a plea, but he was convicted uh, of second-degree murder. That's an intentional homicide, and that's res judicata. Nobody can, can uh, you know, he can't, he can't relitigate that in, in this civil case, can he? Uh, well, the, it was a jury trial. It, it lasted uh, over two weeks, and the prosecutor pushed really hard for a first-degree murder and conviction, which would, would be intentional. But the jury uh, rejected that. They came back with a second-degree conviction, which is not necessarily intentional under Virginia law, but does require a showing of malice. Um, I certainly, as a civil attorney, would, would contest even that malice finding. But it's it, it gets tricky when you try to take what a jury did and using different criminal definitions and then apply that to an insurance policy. And the interesting thing about this case is the victim's mother, Yardley Love, 
uh, the, um, sorry, Yardley Love's mother, Sharon Love, has taken a legal position in the Maryland case that this was indeed an accident, that it was not intentional at all. Well, I have a feeling that's convenient for her, of course. Um, yeah, I, it, it's a very interesting case. It's, obviously, it's a really sad situation. Two college people whose lives are, one is, is ended and one is ruined. Um, how is it that, I, I just find it interesting that, you know, I'm sure your services aren't cheap. Uh, you're, mount, you're doing all this investigation, and that's very expensive, and your time is very expensive. How is it that it, that he's able to afford uh, this excellent representation? Well, I, I really can't go into the specifics of that. Um, but, but you know, I, I will say it's been a real pleasure to represent him. He's, uh, you know, he got a 23-year sentence with that second-degree conviction. Um, it's been a real opportunity to see someone that, uh, had a very serious binge drinking problem. Unfortunately, it was not addressed, and it culminated in this uh, horrific tragedy. He's made the best of it. Uh, I was visiting with him last week. He's eight years into a uh, – he'll have to serve about 20 years of that sentence under the Virginia system. He's come wow. to terms with it. He's a changed man, and uh, he, he's been a great guy to represent. How old is he now? Uh, he's 28. Oh, so he's this he's already been there for since he was 20. Right. He he uh he was picked up the next morning. No, that can't be. Uh, about the, the, she didn't die and it, it's she she died in May 2010. That's only 6 years ago. Right. So how I, is he I, I, how is he 8 years into a 23 year sentence? Uh I I'm sorry. He, he's he's he will only serve 20 of the years under the Virginia system. He'll get a 15% credit for good time served. So he was he was taken in at 22. He'll be released at 42. And you know, I may have been a rounding error in how I phrased it. Right. What a nightmare. That's just that's just a sad thing for everybody involved. But it must be a very interesting case, and I I wish you the best of luck with it. We're gonna have to uh, uh, we're gonna have to close now. Thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, we Thank do not have time. time for Reed's rant, so we will see you next week at our show at same time, same place. Thanks for listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio with Robert, Mark, and Reed. Remember to check us out at KuzikLaw.com. That's KuzikLaw.com. Each week, we analyze civil cases in the news, trends in the law, and all legal current events. Thanks for listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio.